What it illustrates for you and I is the choice that is before us to live single-hearted or to live a life that is double-hearted, right? That, that's where it's at. Uh, this is the mind map of a duplicitous believer, somebody who would take one route one day and another route the other day. And so in other words, this pictures the heart decision before each one of us every day. It acknowledges the biblical truth of the war with our flesh, James chapter 4, verse 1, right? From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence even of your lust, that war in your members. So there, we talked about that last week. The acknowledgement that there is a struggle with sin in us and around us. Okay, so we have that understanding that that's where it's at. This diagram acknowledges that. In fact, it starts there. It starts with addressing the reality of who man is, sinful by nature, and redeemed by Christ. Okay, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment. Galatians chapter 5, before we move forward, we're going to go through both parts of this quickly and sort of look at it uh, because I think it was insightful. Well, it was insightful for me uh, as I was studying this week. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So here we have this, this war, this battle between our spirit, between the Holy Spirit of God within us, between the lust of our flesh, those things fighting. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about finding himself doing those things that he doesn't want to do, and the things that he does want to do, those are the things that he's not doing, which is common, right? We understand this. There, the, 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 the temptation, the sin that is surrounding us that we yield to uh, from time to time is universal. And we've established that ad nauseum, right? Uh, to the extent that it nauseates us. That's what that means. We understand this. This is foundational understanding. He continues on. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Right? So there is a struggle within us. There's a battle happening. Now, we want to establish ourselves to be those who would walk in faith. And that begins first, I want to look at the top half first of this particular. I thought, you know, if I made it smaller, it would, it did, did nothing. It did nothing. But <laughs> at least. We're not looking at the other part while we're talking about the other part. So here we are. Fleshly influences. Let's talk about some fleshly influences. We discussed some last week as we went through the book of James in chapter 4. Right? We, we, we desire this stuff, and we ask that we can consume it upon our lust. We didn't give specifics here. But there may be the specifics for desiring for our own glory, as I mentioned earlier. These are the things that, that I get to be good at, that I get to be acknowledged and recognized for. These are the things... That, that we should be, that people should be thanking me for. In the book of Acts, uh, I believe it's in chapter 15, right? We have Herod. And as Herod is giving this oration, that gives this wonderful speech, and everybody's like, wow, this is such a great speech. It's like hearing from God and Herod, because he didn't immediately say, no, I'm just a man, was struck dead. By taking the honor and the glory of God. We're going to talk about that. Uh, to some degree next week, but that might be a desire. But what are some of the other uh, probably more common 
fleshly influences that we're going to encounter. Those things that, because as believers, right, if we're sincere, we do want to see God glorified. We may fail in that, but, but by and large, the desire of our heart is that God would be honored by the things that we do, by how we conduct ourselves, by the things that we say, and that he wouldn't be defamed. We don't want to indulge in blasphemy for the most part. So with some things that fleshly influences that we may struggle with, much more common, much more uh, understandable and relatable. Perhaps a fear of being hurt. Or that I'm going to protect myself, that, that I shouldn't have to suffer as a result of walking with Christ. That I'm going to be hurt. A desire to be understood. The truth is this, right? That we are peculiar treasures to the Lord. That his people are going to stand out. We are not going to be understood. Our friends and our family, those who are outside of Christ, he, our coworkers, people day in and day out are not going to understand the reasons why we do things. It's, it's unfair of us to ask and to think that unbelievers would understand the world through a worldview of Scripture. We're not going to be understood. A desire to be loved. Everyone has a desire to be loved, right? We, we desire that our, our spouse, that our parents, that our children, that we would have these loving relationships. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But where is our sufficiency? Are we trying to satisfy a weak relationship with God where I'm walking double-hearted with these other loving relationships? Or is my dependence upon the love of God that is unchanging, is always there, is 100% certain. Maybe there's a desire for a godly husband, or maybe there's a desire for a, a godly wife, whatever it may be. Are, are those things becoming idols? If only my husband was more godly, then, then I could be more godly. That's a terrible excuse. Your relationship with the Lord is your relationship with the Lord. Maybe there's shame, maybe there's fear, maybe there's guilt because of past failures, past yielding to the lust of the flesh. All of these are very relatable. These are things that are there and these are fleshly influences because what happens is when we think about them, we become self-reliant. Well, what that means is that we put our play ourselves in the place of God. I'm counting on my ability to keep the law perfectly, in other words. I'm relying upon myself to maintain my relationship with God, that somehow he will lose favor with me if I sin. And so I've got these fleshly influences all around me. I'm going to maintain this persona, this facade of godliness, and I become self-reliant. That outcome depends upon you completely. Because you've, at that point, we've excluded God from the equation. And what that means to you and I, when we live that out, it means that I have to say the right things. It means that I have to do the right things, that I have to associate with the right people. I, sh I should know exactly what to do in every circumstance. We bear a huge burden that we can't rightly bear. And that's going to lead to, one, fear. Right? I'm going to somehow encounter a circumstance that I cannot handle. That in my flesh and in my own self-sufficiency, I am not good enough, smart enough, 
uh, I don't know enough about the word. I'm not committed enough, whatever, whatever it may be. I am not enough. And so we live in fear. We live in that bondage that I'm going to slip, that I'm going to fall. Some people are going to see through everything. The other thing is that, that it may lead to wrong scripture application, that here it is, I take the word of God and I justify the sin or the self-reliance that I am indulging in. And I conform the word of God to the image of the God that I have placed on the throne of my heart and not let the word of God dwell in me richly to, to root out those misconceptions. The end result ultimately is that things go poorly because there's always going to be some circumstance. Our sin will find us out. That failure is going to lead to more shame, more guilt, more fill. You see that it's a cycle. It goes back to the beginning. Now, I know that I have a fear of being hurt, that I'm not understood. Now, I know these things are falsely confirmed to me. The end result for you and I as believers, these are factors that lead to self-reliant thinking, okay? unbelief, those strongholds of sin, those lusts of the flesh that we are going to yield ourselves. These are the areas where I get to be sovereign. What we don't understand or what we are unwilling to acknowledge is that the joy is a fruit of the Spirit, not something that we manufacture. This is a miserable existence. This is a path of living as a good, quote-unquote, good Christian, right? People see the right things. People hear the right things. But I'm miserable. This is self-reliant. And when we're self-reliant, right, we're those, those unstable people because I have a foot over here. I, I know the Lord. I may be, I'm born again, but I am trusting my own efforts. I'm trusting my own insight. I'm trusting all of these things over here, my fleshly influences, and I'm yielding to those. And it's hard. Paul is addressing that throughout these duplicitous believers. This is them. This is where they're at. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. This is something that we need to be aware of is going on within us. And we need to realize that when we make the choice to be double-hearted, when we make the choice to be self-reliant, that this is what we're choosing. It is a deception. Adam and Eve chose to be self-reliant. They chose to be self-reliant. I don't trust that God is good. I don't trust that God is for me, somehow he's withheld something. So now I have to indulge this fleshly appetite and see if I'm right or wrong. Okay. That's all by contrast to somebody who is single-hearted for the Lord. I'm not self-reliant. I'm completely reliant upon the Lord. And so if you want to go find this, you go to rickthomas.net and you type in the search bar, self-reliant versus VS gospel-reliant. That'll bring you this picture. And with that picture, you'll have 
article after article after article, video after video, podcasts, all kinds of a wealth of information that go alongside of this. Okay, it's good stuff. We need to address this, right? You'll notice that in the beginning, right, that it starts with how we think. We have these fleshly influences that come in, and then we have the work of the Spirit. Both of those represented there, and it and it's how, what do we think about this? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to look at verses 4 and 5. These are familiar to us. They should be familiar to us. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5. For the weapons, remember, this is spiritual battle. This is something we are engaged in. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not carnal. It's not doing the right things. It isn't reading the right, reading our Bible correctly or enough or praying enough or tithing enough or going to church enough. Or It's not doing the right things. It, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In those areas of our life, where we have held on to self-reliance and we've held on to control. I can keep this under wraps. I can keep this in control. We cannot. There is a war within our flesh and we're going to yield to it. We're going to fail. We've already acknowledged that last week, that that is part of life. The self-reliant life struggles. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Who are they mighty through? Your name is not there. They are mighty through God. They are mighty through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The work of redemption within your heart and within my heart and that alone. It is him doing the work within us. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How do we think about things? When we are faced with that trial, with that temptation, with that hardship, with that, those times of relative ease and abundance and blessing, when we're faced with those, what do we think about it? Am I taking these thoughts captive to the mind? Do I think about it the way God thinks about it? Or do I think about it some other way? I gave the example of Nebuchadnezzar last week. You remember that? Here he is standing up there looking over Babylon. Look at this great city. This is the, this is the monument to my glory. At that moment, he had a choice, didn't he? I can either acknowledge God and his goodness and his provision, his sovereignty, or I can be self-reliant. This is something that everybody should look and when they see it, they should honor me. There's a choice to be made. This is where, that's why I say it, it starts with our thinking. Now, the abundance of our heart is going to have a direct effect upon what, how we think about things. Jesus said, and we've talked about this over and over and over as we've studied through the book of James, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's how we conduct ourselves. That's what we believe. That's what we think. What is in here has to be changed first and foremost. And God begins that process when he pulls our hard, defective, sin-corrupted hearts out and gives us that new soft heart that is yielding to his spirit. 
And that happens when we're justified, when we are declared to be righteous by God and we are given that new heart and, and right figuratively speaking, but you understand what God is explaining to us in that figure. And that heart is yielded and submitted and soft and moldable. And then God continues the process through sanctification, where he molds us into the image of Christ, where he addresses those strongholds, where he begins by the Holy Spirit and the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the power of his word engaging us to point out things where we need to correct our thinking, where we think about things differently than he does. I am unwilling to call that thing sin because I still want it. I'm unwilling to acknowledge my dependence or my yielding to these fleshly influence. Those areas where we read about in John chapter 3, where Jesus addresses that, where we hold on to, and that becomes a source of condemnation, right? And here we are. We don't, wanna, we don't want things exposed. And we usually discuss that here at Baseline in regard to unbelievers, but here is James addressing that very thing in regard to believers. These areas that we want to not have exposed, that we want to rely upon ourselves, or somehow I've got this under control. The choice is before you and I, and it's going to start with how we think about things. Are we willing to acknowledge that this is something that God has done, that this is how God thinks about that, that this is something that God has allowed or is, pray, is bringing about in my life to further train me, to correct me. We're going to think about it the way God thinks about it. And it's going to be a work of the Spirit. It's going to be something that He is doing in us. Back to this mind map, right? There's a desire to glorify God. For believers, there is a desire to glorify God. There is. There's a desire to live worthy of being called uh, one of His people, of being part of His family. And those are not inappropriate desires, but it's not something that we manufacture. How do I think about my relationship? Is it with my Father in heaven? Is it something that I, boy, I better keep everything just right, keep my Legos off the floor, keep the whatever it may be, right? Do the things that I know he's expecting me to do, and that'll somehow make, it, make him agreeable or make me agreeable to him. Or do we understand that his love never changes? And even while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for you and I. How do we think about that? Am I self-reliant, works-focused, or am I gospel Christ-focused, Christ-reliant? If we live a gospel-centered life, we live in complete dependence upon God. It's not about what I've done or, or how good I am or what kind of a front I put out there. While, while we may, those things may be important, right? We don't want to defame the name of God. There is a desire to live worthy of being called. There's a desire to glorify God. And that factors into that desire. But there's nobody that has ever been saved, as we read in the book of Galatians, by keeping the law. So this gospel living, the depend, our dependence upon God, not upon ourselves, not about what I can do or what you can do. Here's the thing. I can rest trusting the Holy Spirit to lead. So 
Somebody who is self-reliant doesn't have rest. I've always got to be a step ahead because I got to know what to do and when to do it. I can trust, you and I can trust that the this Holy Spirit, according to Christ, is going to reprove us of truth and of righteousness and of justice, and that he's going to remind us everything that Jesus taught. So he's going to bring to our minds the word of God. And not only that, but he's going to empower us to do those things. I can trust, I can rest in the assurance and the promise of God and his word that that is exactly what's going to happen. So as the spirit engages in your life and in my life, no longer do I have to be a step ahead. Now, I would highly recommend that you're engaged in the word. Not as a work of righteousness, but as a work of dependence. Lord, teach me your ways. We're going to look for what God is up to. But we're not going to think, we're not going to live. In other words, we're not living in a reactive mode. I've got to do the right things. I've got to put forth the right, forth the right front. With these people, I have to say these things and do those things. With these people, I have to operate this way. No, we're going to look for what God is up to in me and around me. If we are his children, then we are his instruments in the world around us. And more often than not, when it talks about iron sharpening iron, right? Just as a friend sharpens the countenance of his friend, we affect one another. When I feel as if I'm ministering to you, I'm, I'm speaking truth into your life, it's usually a two-way street. Right? We want to pay attention to that interaction and fellowship that here we are sharpening one another. And, and do I have the opportunity to be that encourager, to be that one that brings some accountability? Uh, these are things that are pleasing to the Lord, provoking to love and good works. Hebrews 10.25. We want to look for what God is up to. Has he put me here? Has this struggle come as a result of things that I need to do? Or has it just come as a result of the effects of sin, and Lord, we're going to rejoice in all the trials and temptations that come our way. We're going to find scripture that helps, right? And what, what we mean by that is that we're going to take the truth of God's word. We're going to, here it is, this is the truth. And we're going to allow that to attack unbelief. Right? That I have to, and just in keeping with this particular example, these are the things that I have to do. That sounds like a Pharisee. And so what does the scripture say? Well, no one's saved by the works of the law. No one can look good enough. What did Jesus attack? He attacked the hypocrisy, the duplicity within the Pharisees. We're going to let the truth of God's word reign in our life. We're going to walk in the spirit. Independence upon the Spirit, independence upon God and His direction, His leading, His empowerment. And we're going to die to self, which is really, in a lot of ways, what James is all about. Dying to self. No longer am I self-reliant, no longer am I trusting in myself to save myself, but I'm trusting completely and wholly in the Lord. And we're going to rest in God's sovereignty. Oh, geez, you guys are struggling to keep along because I'm just... Right, we're going to struggle. We're going to rest in God's sovereignty. It doesn't matter if we believe it, live it, or not. He is, in fact, sovereign. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, for all things, exist for His glory and for His pleasure. 
Revelation 4.11 says something similar to that. Here we have the opportunity to trust. The gospel-motivated life lives as restored image bearers of, and qualified worshipers. And there's a lot to unplug in that saying. They, I found this to be helpful uh, sort of illustration of what James is talking about and really what we encounter as believers day in and day out. These are legitimate and real-life struggles. Probably more of us would fear uh, or, or struggle with the fleshly influence of a desire to be loved or desire to be understood than the desire to engage in adultery, or that's probably just not where we're at. But these are still nonetheless fleshly influences that we will struggle with yielding to. And when we make that choice, we need to understand the full ramification. When we submit to it, right, here it is. But when we trust in the Lord, when we're completely and wholly 100% in that camp, no matter what happens, That's the path of living Christ-like. Now, we have this change of perspective. James gives sound counsel to repair and to combat the duplicity in the lives of his audience. You and I are his audience. And he seeks to establish those people, whether you call it a gospel worldview, a biblical worldview, or a God-reliant worldview, whatever you call it, that's what it is. Right? That, that's what we're talking about. That's what James is working to establish. Okay, Let's talk about that this morning. Let's look in James chapter 4, verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Most big corporations have an organization chart, and that's useful in a very big corporation because now you know who your direct supervisor is, who their boss is, who their boss is, who the big boss is. There's this clear alignment, this chain of command, if you will, uh, that we can kind of understand where we are in in the scheme of things, what our responsibilities would be, those things that we should or shouldn't do, who we ask for uh, help or time off or whatever it may be. And the Bible makes uh, a lot of statements about submission, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, believers to one another, uh, those people within the congregation, to the leadership of the elders in the church, children to parents, people to government. There's all this establishment of submission, of authority structure. And God has made it clear to you and I who we submit to. And with that understanding, not only does it give us ideas about our, our responsibilities, whether we're the person being submitted to or the person that is submitting or aligning themselves under, because that's what the word means. It means to bring or to arrange under. We all are arranged under the delegated authorities that God has established. 
right? Romans chapter 13, we'll remember as we studied through that months and months ago, but Romans 13, 1, but we all talk about this in the context of government, but I want you to understand that it isn't simply government. He says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So we have this clear description that here it is. We are to submit ourselves. We are to subject ourselves, put ourselves under, and range in the proper place under the higher powers, those, things, those authorities that God has established within our lives. Whether they be parents, whether they be uh, employers, whether it be the government, whatever that may be, and to whatever degree Scripture would tell us to submit ourselves to, that's where we find ourselves. That's what we should. That's what we ought to do. And he makes it very clear there is no power but of God. Who is, first of all, sovereign? Who is in control? God is. All powers are subject to him. Right? So when we talk about submitting to our government, well, I don't want to do that because they just take my tax money and they support abortions and they do all these things. Praise the Lord, right? By the way, if, you, if you've had your head in the sand, Right? We're rejoicing. We're thankful that here we are acknowledging that Roe versus Wade was corrupt, was sinful, and here we are having overturned it and giving power back to the states. That doesn't mean there won't be abortions anymore. The sin is still going to happen. But what it means is that we could deal with that on a much more local level. And praise the Lord for that. We've changed the area of jurisdiction in some respects, which is how God has allowed our particular country to be organized. We're submitting to those powers because God has established them. The powers that be are ordained or established by God. You and I are not responsible for how they steward the tax money that we are bound to give them. We're not responsible for their indulgence of, of corruption but we are responsible for our position in that authority structure. And God has clearly told us to submit. He has established those entities. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Verses 28 and 30 through 30. Now, this is an interesting little vignette. Here is Jesus Christ speaking, and, he, and this is what he says in verses 28 through 30 of Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is full of truth, but I want you to first understand that this is a statement about being subject, submitting ourselves to the yoke, to the authority of God. All you who labor and are heavy laden, all of you self-reliant people who are carrying around this burden that is not ours to carry, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot become acceptable, we don't maintain our acceptability or relationship with God, by works of righteousness. 
That's the heavy laden audience that Jesus is speaking to, those who are exhausted with fruitless endeavors. I have to look right, I have to say right, I have to be perceived as right. And Jesus says, listen, come unto me, all you who are heavy later, who are labor and are heavy laden, who are burdened and bogged down by it, and I will give you rest. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's uh, allegory of the Christian life, here is Pilgrim, and he comes to the cross, and as he comes to the cross, he's been carrying this massive pack of burden. And as he comes to the cross, you remember, if you've read the story, and if you haven't, you should, that as he comes to the cross, this pack falls off, and all of this burden, all this labor, all of this laden, all of this junk falls off, is removed. And he talks about it, and he discusses this relief, this lightness, so to speak. Jesus says, I will give you rest. He says, I'm going to shoulder the burdens that are not yours to shoulder because they're mine. And he continues on, take my yoke upon you. Now, this is, a, this is talking about submission. We're going to walk under his authority, under his sovereignty. Take my yoke upon you. I mean, I've never yoked an oxen. In fact, well, I've seen a yoke. Yeah. But if that animal doesn't want the yoke on it, there's probably not a lot I'm going to be able to do to stop it. I mean, it weighs 1,500 pounds. And when it gets unruly, it's just unruly. It's like cows in my fence. If they want out of my fence, they just get out of the fence. They go right through the fence. They don't care. You do your best to provide all their needs and keep them here and, you know, make sure the grass is greener inside the fence than outside the fence. And, you know, you're probably 75% of the way there. <laughs> and then you electrify things for the other 25%. Okay, but that's sort of the idea, right? Here we are, we're yielding ourselves, we're submitting ourselves to the authority of God, and we're going to yoke with him. We're going to be under submission to him. But I want you to know that when you yoke oxen, it's in pairs. There's two of them. And so here we have this picture that Jesus is yoked with us. Take my yoke of, uh, upon me, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Here is Jesus who submitted himself to being made lower than the angels for the purpose of dying death. He's meek. He's power constrained. The living God, Emmanuel, in the flesh. And when we read about the Mount of Transfiguration and we see Peter and James and John up on this mountain, they see the glory of God and Jesus' glory revealed just minutely. Peter says, we should probably just stay here forever. Let's make some tents, and we'll just stay here forever. One for Moses, one for Jesus, one for Elijah. We'll just all hang out up here. And they just saw a glimmer of it, just pulled back slightly. Jesus is meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. When we submit ourselves to God, when we walk in obedience to him, we find rest for our souls. We're no longer packing the burden. Jesus is there. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The other way that Jesus would say basically the same thing, I will never leave you. 
yeah, you've really stepped in at this time. This is on you. I'm out of here. I'm not pulling this burden with you. He never says that. He never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He remains in the yoke with us. And the way that he does that is by, by filling us with his Holy Spirit. He's literally with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have the power to walk along, plodding along as that oxen in full submission to the Lord, in full trust that he's not going to drive us off the edge, or he's not going to turn us wrong or turn us uh, overturn the cart or do anything, or he's going to overburden us so that we can't pull the weight. We have all of those assurances. What happens, though, is that we try to put ourselves in that position. We want to be God, and there's only one God. There's only one God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week, so I'm going to leave it at that. But we want to submit ourselves. We want to bring ourselves under the authority and the jurisdiction of God in our lives. Look with me at verse 8. We're going to come back to verse 7, but James chapter 4, verse 8 says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, draw near to God. This is, this is, all it means is a close relationship. That's what it means. that we are dependent upon him, that we are engaged with him. Turn me to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Verse 13. says, Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. In other words, God is condemning the nation of Israel. They're going to be judged for their duplicitousness. Right, we with our mouth we say that we are gods, but in our actions and our heart we are far from Him. And what drawing near really means is to be one and the same. That I'm going to trust God. That I'm going to walk with Him. That I'm going to be in a heart response of faith. That here is God in His goodness. That here He is, uh, having saved me, having done everything. Uh, necessary to provide for my salvation, that he's declared me to be righteous. And the mechanism to have done that is to have condemned his son, Jesus Christ, as sin itself. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, if you'll turn there with me. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now listen, when we talk about the commands of God, when we talk about all of those things that he has told us to do, and if we just break it down to its simplest degree, we look at the Ten Commandments alone. There isn't a single command that God has given us that isn't for our benefit. 
that God in his goodness was telling us what is right and what is wrong, what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. Because with each of those choices, there is consequence, right? That if we engage in this sin, there will be a curse. And if we engage in obedience, there's going to be blessing. We reap what we sow. So God, in every instance where he gives law, is giving it for the benefit of the people who, who receive it. Ultimately, we know that in the end, uh, from, from Scripture, that sin brings death. That's what happens. The end result of it is death. Whether it's spiritual death because we've never accepted Christ, or whether it's just the fruit of that, death of relationship, death of uh, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And God, in his goodness to you and I, is like a parent telling their child, don't play in the road because the end is death. Don't indulge in those sinful indulgences. Don't, don't fall prey to adultery. Don't murder. Don't hate. Don't have other gods before me. Don't worship in idolatry because the end is death. And oh, by the way, you're going to be dying the whole time you're dying. It's, it's like... It's going to hurt the whole time. It's going to be bad, right? That's what he's getting at when he told Adam and Eve, in the day that you do, you'll die. What it means is in dying, you will die. There will be consequence and hardship and everything related, death, decay, related to death. Ultimately, Adam and Eve died. We all die as a result. But along the way, all of the effects of that fall are felt. There's a consequence to sin. So God in his goodness tells you and I, listen, draw near. In other words, trust. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, Jesus made it simple. He took the entirety of the law and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, and he broke it down into two very simple things. Love your neighbor and love God. Not in that order. First is the greatest, right? Love God first and then love your neighbor. And he said, in all of that, in all of the law and the prophets, everything contained in the Old Testament is summed up in regard to the law in those two things, love God. He made it very, very simple. Now, you and I are going to have to depend upon the Spirit to give us some insight into how we may show love to, the, to our neighbors. But ultimately, God told us very simply how we show love to him, obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 10. John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is Jesus again speaking, and now he's not making a conditional statement about the love of God. He's, there's no condition upon the love of God. But what he is saying is that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we want to stay in that position, that close relationship, and that nearness to God, we're going to walk in obedience. And we see that played out in the fruit of Jesus' life, even that here is Jesus, and my son, in whom I am well pleased. One more, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> Let's 
James says, right, draw nigh to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And I don't want you to misinterpret that and say that somehow by our obedience, by our works, God is coming closer with us. Because that's not going to be the case. As many as believe on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And that is true, and that is accurate, and is unchanging. What happens, though, is that we will remove ourselves as a result of the shame, fear, and guilt that we may be feeling from that relationship. And as we draw near to God, our perception is corrected, and we feel the nearness of God. We experience the nearness of God. The reality is, and we read about it in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, the holiest, right? That's the holy of holies. That's where God dwelt with his people, directly into God's presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And how do we enter in? Not timidly. We can have boldness to come into his presence because we are his children. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near identical word, with a true heart, right? Not, not double-heartedness, in full submission to the Lord, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And why would we do that? And for this parenthetical statement is important. For he is faithful that promised. We're not doing this because we are good enough or that we will somehow merit favor with God. No, we're doing this out of a faith response to what God has done for us. We would read in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, excuse me, verse 2, that as we lay our life down as that living sacrifice, it is our reasonable service. As we align ourselves and submit ourselves to, to our Creator, it is our reasonable service to not withhold anything from Him. And here we are, we draw near to God, we do so with single-hearted submission to the Lord, we do so in full confidence of the promises that He's made, that we are declared righteous, that we are His children, that He in fact loves us, that He is for us and, and not against us, that nothing can separate us from His love. that we are washed and that we are pure as a result of the shed blood of Jesus Christ received by faith. We stand firm in our faith, not wavering, because he is faithful. That's the why. Not to be good little Christians, but because God is faithful. And let us consider one another, he says in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Right? We're going to think about how we might in love poke one another, as it were, and provoke to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging, pushing on in the faith one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. It becomes more and more needful. 
We're going to draw into this close relationship with God. We're going to come directly into his presence. There is no mediator between God and man besides the man Christ Jesus. If you have accepted Christ, if you have been born again, then you have direct and full access in presence. And you should enter boldly and regularly and consistently in complete assurance of all that he said. Now, the result of this, what God promises us here in the book of James, is that when we draw near to him, that God will draw near to us. And as I said, that's correction of our perspective. God didn't move away. He didn't leave us. He didn't forsake us. He didn't step back. He didn't leave us to fend for ourselves because we really mucked it up. No, he's right there with us. And we've all experienced this with our earthly parents, right? That when we have engaged in sin, when we failed, we feel this barrier with our parents. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to be in their presence. We don't want to be around them. We don't want to talk to them because we're afraid that that will come out. We're afraid to get caught. We're afraid of whatever. The relationship is hindered as a result of the sin, and we pull back from it. Here's the thing. God knows it already. It's already, he knew it before you committed. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And I got news for you kids. Your parents probably already know what you did. You're not getting away with it. (laughs) Now, we don't know everything. But just as with God, who is never changing, whose love is unconditional, parents are the same. Parents are the same. Their love is unconditional. So we're going to submit ourselves. We're going to put ourselves under the firm, in alignment with the jurisdiction of God in our life. We're going to submit ourselves to his plans and purposes. We're going to submit ourselves wholly and consistently. We're going to draw close to God. We're going to walk in obedience to all that he's commanded us to do. We're going to reciprocate the love of Christ by obedience. We're going to cleanse. He says in verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He goes on in verses Uh, 9 through 10 of James chapter 4, he says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. This is an acknowledgement. This is a discussion about the acknowledgement of where we really are. We're rejoicing. We're enjoying. Here's all this this selfish indulgence that we're engaged in. And just as, uh, as sin in its temporary state brings pleasure, but it's deceitful, right? We talked about that last week. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. Here it is. Be afflicted and mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Call sin for what it is. Acknowledge where we were really at. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift us up. 
He'll be side by side there with us. When we humble ourselves, we put ourselves, that's further discussion about that submitting to the Lord. He says to cleanse ourselves. Cleanse your hands, he says. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. In this passage, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and and that's very clear in the context, uh, and it's very clear in the verses we're about to read. But he's discussing cleansing. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make the clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, but the outside of them may be clean also. Right? We can take all the dishes in our sinks and we can just wash the outside. And from the outside, it looks clean. It looks good. Right? You take, take that bowl, you wash the outside, you put it in the cupboard and you put it in upside down. So that's all you can see. You can't see into it. And you go to that cupboard and you pull a bowl out three days later, not remembering that that's what you've done. You pull it out and it looks good. So you're going to put it on the counter. You get your cereal at 11 o'clock at night. I haven't done that for a while, okay? But I used to, okay? And you flip the bowl over, you go to pull the cereal in and it's filthy, right? All the frosted flakes from three days ago are still there, stuck to the sides. We've all seen it. Just as useless as cleaning the outside of something, being that self-reliant person, saying the right things, doing the right things, looking right on the outside, just as useless as washing only the outside of your bowls and your cups. That's what Jesus is addressing the Pharisees because they did everything in their power to on the outside look good. They were very self-reliant people. They were divided in heart. They said, we want to be acknowledged before man. This is for our glory. This is how we receive the acknowledgement of our righteousness. By keeping the outside clean. And Jesus rebukes him and he tells them, listen, cleanse the heart first. That which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Jesus is really telling them to come to faith. He's telling them to acknowledge who he is because that's the only way we clean the inside, right? You and I can't do it. We can't be good enough. We we can't be smart enough. We we can't uh, do anything that would save us. Jesus is telling them to come to faith, to cleanse themselves, to wash that which was in inside. These Pharisees should have been fully aware of who Jesus was. They were scholars of the law. They were were the biblical commentators of their day. And they missed it. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. beginning in verse 14. 
Now, we're going to make an application with this passage. This is this is this discussion about what part, what how how does uh, Christianity, how does a Christian mix with those who are outside of Christ? And, and it's specific in that context, but we're going to make some application from it. He says, "Be not unequally yoked together." I just pause there, right? We're already yoked with Christ. When when you yoke two oxen together, they need to be of the same size. And I don't speak as, as an expert here, but I speak as somebody who has read commentaries and those kinds of things. So this is the discussion, right? That when, when those things are out of balance, it puts undue pressure on both animals. One may be pulling more, one may be feeling more burden of the yoke as a result of being taller or shorter. Whatever it may be, it's unpleasant. It's harmful. So he says, don't be unequally yoked. We have to remember that we are perfectly yoked with Christ already. And for us to yoke with somebody else means that we have to put that, that yoke off and pick up some other yoke. We've chosen to be self-reliant and pull on our own. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness? It'll mix. Have you ever turned on a light and it stayed dark? No, if the light comes on, if the bulb comes on, it's, it's light now, right? That's the idea. They don't mix. They can't mix. And what concord has Christ, what agreement has Christ with Belial or false gods or with Satan? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. We who have been born again have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We're given that spirit as the earnest of our salvation. We have the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Right? There's this exhorting, this command to you and I to come out and be separate. Now, that doesn't mean go and live in little Christian communes all around. We never let any unbelievers in. That's not what he's talking about. We are strangers. We are pilgrims in a strange land. That's We're in the world, but not of it. We don't seclude ourselves. That's, that's where we're at. But what it means is that we are not pulled around by all of this stuff that's happening. Right, that we are single-heartedly standing in the trust of God and who He is, that He is sovereign. And so when we find all kinds of calamity in the world around us, we're not overturned in our faith. When we find all of this conflict in the world around us, we understand, well, where does this come from? This is sin. We understand it from God's perspective. We are thinking rightly about things. We are to be separate. We are to come out from it, not submit ourselves, not corrupt ourselves, not intermingle and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, which is kind of what the church has done in regard to the gospel, isn't it? We want to make it palatable. We want to make it taste good. We want people to be accepting of it and cause no offense. And they forget that Jesus said, listen, I came not to not offend people, but I came and I'll defend and cause even division amongst families. Be ye separate. 
right? We're not going to give in to these fleshly influences to be understood, to be loved, to be, un, to, to, to be acceptable to people around us. We're going to take that yoke off, and we're going to walk back over here and put back on the yoke with Christ. And he goes on in chapter 7, verse 1, having therefore these promises. Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Just as we read about in, the, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're not doing this as a way to earn favor with God. We're doing this because God is good. It's a reciprocation of what we've received from him. So we cleanse ourselves. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, participating in our sanctification that I'm going to let the word of God come in, that it's going to change who I am, that it's going to affect the way that I think. In effect, we are consciously changing the abundance of our heart. But I'm going to take the time and I'm going to be engaged in the word so that I know what God's word says. I know what he thinks about that or what he thinks about this. I've learned the promises and I can walk in trust of what God has promised. I've seen the faithfulness of God through the pages of scripture. Therefore, Surrounded by such a great company of witnesses, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, I can put off the sin that has so easily beset me and walk with him. Patiently, the race that is set before me. And we're going to cleanse ourselves. We're going to engage in that, come out from among them and remain out from among them. We're not going to be entangled over here. He also says in in James chapter 4, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's an acknowledgement. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaven. There's an acknowledgement of the sin that is within us. There's this consistent uh, persona, uh, wrong word, consistent engagement of repentance. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And you're going to have to stick with me. We're going to read a little bit here. But I can say it, or we can let the Word of God say it, and it's probably going to be much clearer. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that we're dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For, the, he is, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Let's just pause there for a moment. We're acknowledging our relationship with God that we've been born again. We're acknowledging the newness of life being laid down in, in that symbol of resurrection, and now we are new, and we're going to walk in that newness of life. We're acknowledging that we are no longer slaves bound to operate and work under the jurisdiction of sin. 
right? If we want to talk about victory in regard to the lust of the flesh, we have to realize that we are not obligated in any way, shape, or form to fulfill them anymore. The old man is crucified. We need to acknowledge these facts. And these are biblical facts. Let's continue on. Verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon yourselves also dead to sin, dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are no not under the law, but under grace. We're acknowledging the deliverance of God. We're acknowledging the grace, the power of grace within our life that God will deliver us from sin, that he will give us that grace that we may stand under, that we may not succumb to the fleshly indulgences, the lusts of our flesh. And our part, our reciprocation in kind, the reciprocation of love to God in this sense is that we're not going to yield ourselves to it any longer. We have this, these lusts of the flesh, these fleshly influences, those things that are there, and we have the work of the Spirit, and we're going to consciously choose to walk in the Spirit. I said this before, we talk about faith, and we, we talk about it in this real ethereal kind of plane, but it's a very practical thing. I choose to walk in faith. I choose to trust God over all of this stuff. I choose God over my acceptance, over my fear of being rejected, over being understood. I choose God over all of that. And that's an act of faith. Jump with me down to verse 18 in Romans 6. Being there then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. We need to acknowledge what we are a servant of. We're not a servant of those flesh any longer. We're a servant of God. Verse 22, be now, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This statement of fact that we are free from sin and we've become the servants of God. That's who we are. When we talk about servants and we talk about uh, bondage, there would be those who would cringe at that thought that, oh, I'm subject to God. Here's the thing. This is the news for them. You're subject to God anyway. One way or the other. But for you and I who are in Jesus, there is a different predetermined plan for those who are outside of Jesus. To be outside of Jesus is to exist in your natural state, sinful, therefore condemned before God. Hell is the predetermined destination. Your ticket's already been punched. But you can get a new ticket by faith in Jesus Christ. The predetermined plan for you and I as believers, we read about in Romans chapter 8, is to be conformed, molded into the image of God, into the image of Christ. 
and eternal life is the predetermined destination. Non-refundable, non-exchangeable ticket. That's the reality of who we are. We just have that choice to make. Am I going to operate in faith or am I going to operate in self-reliance or am I going to trust God? He also continues, he says, to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. <clears throat> it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He's talking about, this is in the context of submission. The previous verse, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we humble ourselves, it says that he will lift us up in due time, that he will exalt us, humble yourselves before God, and he shall lift you up. When we, by faith, accept Christ and put ourselves under the, under the authority, under the jurisdiction of God as sovereign in our life, he exalts us. He lifts us up to that eternal life. He brings us into relationship with him. No longer, uh, Jesus said, I'm no longer going to call you servants, but friends. Right? We have a whole and a very different relationship with our God at that point. This single-heartedness. We need to cleanse ourselves as God has already cleansed us and as God is in the process of continual cleansing of Now, I told you we'd come back to verse 7, and I don't want to go back to verse 7, because the devil would like nothing more than for us to take everything that we've heard this morning and forget it all. He would like nothing more than to deceive us into believing that the promises of God, that his goodness, that his faithfulness, that his, the salvation that he's offered each one of us, that it isn't free, that he hasn't even really offered it, that you're no better off than you were before, he wants to deceive us in any way, shape, or form that he can. He wants to keep our heart divided. And his biggest tool in doing that is by casting doubt. And I know we talked about this last week, but we discussed as we talked about grace and trusting that God is, is going to give us the grace that is necessary. For us to trust the Lord means that we resist the devil. Just as he said in, in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have to realize, and, and I want to just point this out, and I'm not going to say much more about it, but the why Satan would flee from us. Two things. Number one, when he looks at you and I, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
as imperfectly as it may be, we are clothed in Jesus's righteousness and, and the devil would see him. Secondly, he knows what team we're on. That's why he's working on us. And that's why he's working on us in the way that he is. Now, I'm not saying that say the, the devil is omniscient and can see your heart. But what it would suggest that he's maybe more adept at discerning the fruits that we may portray. I'm just going to leave it at that. But when he looks at you and I, when he sees us resisting him, we ha had a little bit of a conversation about this last Sunday with, with some folks. And what, what they talked about, there's a movie, in, I think it was called The Bear. I think I might have even seen it when I was a kid. But there's this little bear cub, and he ends up running around with this big bear. And there's a scene in the movie where there's this mountain lion, and this little bear cub stands up, and he rears up, and he's just roaring and growling, and, he, and this mountain lion takes off. And he's feeling pretty good about himself. Right, here I am. And when, when the camera turns around and you see this bear cub, you see the bear cub, and then you see the big bear that he's running around with standing behind him. And in effect, that's kind of what happens, right? That when, when Satan, the devil, looks at you and me and he sees us resisting him, not only does he see you and I, but he sees the armies of God and he sees God himself standing behind us. When we resist the devil, and resist means to align ourselves against to set ourselves in array, to set ourselves at battle with the devil. We're not fighting alone. And the promise is, and the takeaway is right, he's going to flee from you and I. He wants to deceive us, though. He wants to keep us weak. He wants us to make us doubt. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, that's where we read about the fall. Here are Adam and Eve living in the perfect garden, perfect estate, not corrupted by sin. God has given them one rule to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And the serpent shows up, the devil. And it begins to question them and to sow doubt. Well, did God really say that you can't eat of the fruit? And Eve answers, well, yeah, he said we can't eat of the fruit. Well, then he's cast, he, he cast doubt upon the character of God. Well, God knows that in the day that you eat it, that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Dividing their heart, trying to make them remove one, one foot on this side of the fence and one foot on that side of the fence. That's when they fell. They were unstable in all of their ways and they succumbed to the sin, to the lust. They saw that it was good for food. They saw that it was delightful to look at. It appealed to the flesh. And they yielded to sin. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, I think we read this last week, but it, it says, Be watch, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may, whom he may devour. So there's some takeaways there. Number one, he's looking for prey. Number two, he wants to devour us. But it goes on, whom resist steadfast in the faith, trusting completely and wholly in God, resist in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions were accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. When you hear that, when you read that thing, there is no temptation taking you with such as is common to man. 
the temptation to doubt, the temptation to fulfill the lust of the flesh, whatever it may be, it's common. Resist steadfast, knowing that this is common. Verse 10, but the great God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that he, you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we have the victory. When we resist the devil, what are we told? Sure, he's a roaring lion. He's running around. He's looking at who he may devour. He, he's seeking prey. He wants to cast out. We've got his MO. We know what he's going to do. We know what his, what his end game is, so to speak. And the word of God tells you and I that if we resist him, he will flee from us. Well, that doesn't mean we'll never be tempted again. It doesn't mean we'll never, we'll never be tried. But what it means is that victory is possible. That by faith, as we read there in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, by faith, keeping the faith, not being uh, dissuaded by doubt. In Ephesians chapter 6, as we read about uh, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to read two verses, 11 through 12. As we close this morning, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Right, we put on the armor of God and he didn't leave us helpless. He fitted each one of you for battle. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're battling. We are fighting even Satan himself, he and his minions. The good news is the victory is there. You know, people joke about it. It's even cliche in Christian circles, right? I read the end of the book, we win. Listen, you didn't have to get to the end of the book to know that we were going to win. And that's why we read about those examples of faith, those who never doubted, those who always were consistent and steadfast. Why? Because they trusted in God. And what happened? God showed himself strong on their behalf, just as he will for you and I. Have that assurance. And all of these fleshly influences, all of these things they may grab onto us, as legitimate as they may be. As we, and, I'm, and I want to say that, right? It's legitimate. We have this struggle. God is greater. His grace is more than sufficient. You can trust. He will never leave. He will never forsake. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've put before us to be in your word, to be encouraged. Lord, I thank you for those others, uh, like Rick, who, who put these things out there that are affirming and, and give us insight into the way that we have been fashioned, Lord, into the reality of the fallen and the corrupt world that we live in. And Lord, to bring to remembrance, as your word so frequently does, your goodness and faithfulness.
the victory that is offered in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for your grace for each one here that we might be those who are single-hearted. That we would be willing, Lord, to, uh, for lack of better terms, to step out, to, to roll the dice, as it were, with you. And God, I know that as we do, because your word says it, you will be faithful. That you, indeed, Lord, are no gamble. Help us, Lord, to know that. In the very depths of who we are, in the deepest places of our hearts and minds, Lord, help us to know that you are for us and not against us, that nothing can separate us from your love, that we are your peculiar treasure. We thank you, Lord, for that. We praise you for your son and through the veil of his flesh that we might enter and only through that veil. We thank you, Lord, for all that he's done. And as we sing praise now and worship you for who you are and all that you have done, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. That we might be inspired to worship you for all that you've done. To sing praise, Lord, not as facade or for the benefit of those that might see it, but God, for your glory and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and that we give thanks. Amen.